I just um, want to thank Father Patrick, the pastor, right out for this opportunity to preach this morning. As John the Evangelist, as John the Evangelist has it, God is love. God, our Father, loves us in creating us. God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, loves us in redeeming us. God, the Spirit of the mutual love of the Father and the Son, loves us in drawing us closer to Him, in making us holy. God creates all of us. God does not create some of us and not others. God creates all of us. And as Genesis will have it, God looks on his creation and he sees that it is good. And in our fallenness, our sinfulness, God redeems all of us. Jesus, by his own cross and resurrection, makes of us a kingdom and priests to spread his word and offer his sacrifice. He redeems all of us. And when Jesus returns to the Father, Jesus and the Father send their spirit to sanctify us in the community that we still call by its Greek name, the church. And what does that mean to sanctify us, to make us holy, except to lift us up, to draw us to the God who lifts us, to God who alone is most truly holy, to God's own self, to bring us to share in God's divinity, even as our God saw fit to share in our humanity. There's a mystery in all of that that no amount of explaining will ever overcome, even as there is a mystery that belongs to each one of us human beings that can only be solved and resolved by a union with our God. It is what we live for. It's easy to tire of thinking about the Trinity. Why? Because while there's plenty to think about, there's nothing to see directly. There's nothing ready at hand that we can point to. So much of our lives, though, is like that. That is, so much of our lives revolves around things that we can't see. Take, for example, the goodness of each of us. When I'm dealing with people around me, students in a classroom, or colleagues in a meeting, or people in the church, I know that each of them has people in his or her life who sees their respective goodness much more clearly than I see it. 
the people who longed to see them in their absence, the people who would worry terribly if anything were to happen to them, the people, in short, who loved them. I wish that I had eyes that could see the goodness in those around me that their nearest and dearest see. I think that those eyes are like the eyes of God, the Creator, who forever looks on his creatures and sees how good they are. But however that may be, most often we don't see that goodness, or we can't see that goodness. And because we can't see, it's easy for us to forget that that goodness exists and is present in the people who are living all around us. I suppose, too, that when you live a life in certain professions, such as the life of a police officer or a prosecutor, you see human beings who aren't showing off their better natures, perhaps making their goodness even harder to see. Tragically, on May 25th of this year, George Floyd's goodness vanished from this life in the grip of Derek Chauvin, a police officer relentlessly bearing down on him. Mr. Chauvin could not see Mr. Floyd's goodness in the waning moments of his life. And evidently, neither could he see that goodness in his mind's eye. He was blind to it. But in the span of just about nine minutes, his blindness was cured. His eyes were opened. And Mr. Floyd was gone. And as the perpetrator became the victim and the protector became the perpetrator, we, all of us, came face to face with our fallenness. And to see once again why God had to send his only son to save the world on our own we cannot seem to get things straight. Dennis Chauvin was sent to get justice for a convenience store owner. Now, some prosecutor is poised to get justice for George Floyd. Let's see now, is it manslaughter, third degree murder, second degree murder? At the same time that we hear the heartbreaking lamentations of the family and friends of George Floyd, we know too that there are people who continue to love Derek Chauvin, who continue to see his goodness. And even if they acknowledge his wrongdoing and guilt, when they pray to God, they are fervently praying to God to have mercy on their brother. True it is that today in the world, 
There is a great hue and cry for justice. But these questions continue to linger silently in the air. Where is the good Samaritan who will have mercy on that man lying in the road, now gone? Where is the father of the prodigal son who will have mercy on that man in the prison cell? God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Last Wednesday, I attended a prayer service in Baltimore, a city which, through God's grace, remained calm throughout the national storm. There was a woman there whose son had died at the hands of a policeman. A woman who stood and prayed for law enforcement officers. Jesus Christ was alive in the heart and voice of that woman. Which brings me to us, church, friends in Christ. What is Jesus calling us latest disciples to pray for? Are we followers of Christ inspired to make the world a better place in regard to this blight which is racial prejudice? Do we in fact even care? But how could we not? One hears it said often enough that we need to think about the issue of racism other than when we're in crisis. A good point, I think. Because when we're not in crisis, there's a kind of pillowy comfort zone that we may very largely sink back into regarding racial prejudice. No one wants to be called a racist, but are we willing to stand up and speak out when we witness displays of racial prejudice, or do we, we remain passive? and silent in the face of these displays. I have an instance in mind close to home. Some of you may remember Father William Gorey, the Redemptorist priest from Zimbabwe, who lived in residence here for three or four years while he was studying at Loyola University. But one Saturday, Father Gorey came into the Mary Garden for a few moments of reflection. And in the garden there were people engaged in taking pictures for a wedding. They weren't in his vicinity, so his presence posed no apparent problem. That is, until a gentleman from the wedding company approached to ask Father Gorey brusquely what he was doing there. When Father Gorey told him that he was reflecting and asked why he wanted to know, the man told him that he should leave the garden and threatened finally to call the police. When Father Gorey told him that he lived there, 
The man backed down and apologized, but by then it had become clear that the single reason why the man approached Father Gori at all was that he was a black man. I wonder if anyone in that company ever said anything to that man about his behavior. Had we been there, would we have said anything? Regarding racial matters, are we treating our neighbors as ourselves? Are we teaching our children to respect and consider and act compassionately towards others who don't look like them? I don't mean to say here that the church leadership is asleep in this matter. I know for a fact that Archbishop Lori and his staff has been pointedly working to make the church more visible in doing good works in the inner city in Baltimore among our African-American brethren. Nevertheless, this cannot be emphasized enough. The loud calls for improvements among police and courts and systems will all come to nothing unless we good Christian people racial resentment and no Christian person has a right to it. Not a black man or woman resenting a white person on account of their white skin, nor a white man or woman resenting a black person on account of their skin. Martin Luther King is well known for his 1963 address featuring the line, I have a dream. Well, I have a dream too. Having lived my entire life looking at the world through the true lens, through what I believe is the true lens of the Catholic faith. My dream is that our world one day would be able to say to us in the face of these repeated atrocities, such as the George Floyd affair, as Mary and Martha said of Jesus, that they would be able to say, Church, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The things that divide us and the things that unite us are forever at war with one another. Yet, one thing unite, that unites us is the thing that brings us here this morning. The desire to bring ourselves before our God, to break bread together, to plead to our God for forgiveness for our sins, to join hands and implore our God for peace, not the peace of this world, but God's peace, the peace of our brother and Savior, Jesus Christ.